So, I don't know how to buy beer anymore. Because <laughs> every time I go, I'm like, I have to find the most thematic beer. Even when I'm not. Even when you don't care, you still look at every single can. And I look like a maniac. Yeah. Like, literally, I was on the floor pulling out. Be- and, like, now I've gotten to the point where even, like, I know we said we aren't going to do thematic beers anymore. And, like, eh, we still do because we're assholes. Yeah. Uh, just slightly less, like, anal retentive assholes about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I will, even when I'm just looking for beers for myself, I'm still in there for 25, 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. Because I'm like, well, what if I find a beer I like more? Yeah. So, yeah. In the um, meantime, like 10, you know, dudes just walk in, grab their 30 racks and leave. And I'm still there like, but how can I make this one thematic? <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm like, I know I don't have to anymore, but like, I really want to. Yeah. I want to be clever. Come on. I'm smart. Being clever is very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Why are we doing this I to ourselves? Because we're know. assholes. Because we're assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Rock Candy. <laughs> your show with a bunch of assholes. <laughs> yes. Mm. And your weekly podcast bringing you sweet treats from the world of music. I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. And here it is. The last one. The last, our last, our last our, artist, our last, our last, our last, our last, our last, <laughs> our, last. <laughs> our last musician. Yeah, our, our last big ass story. Yeah. So it's gonna be another multiple parter too. Fuck. So. Yeah. This is now you know what I went through with Rush, and it can be yours now. <laughs> this is now my <laughs> burden to bear. I don't want to share the load. No. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm doing David Bowie. Yeah. And it's easily an, a third part, three-parter. Oh, yeah. Easily. And, and an obvious choice, guys, if you couldn't guess it. Yeah. I mean, come on. What else am I going to talk about? Seriously. Actually, I could have talked about a lot of people. That is true, but I'm not more interesting than David Bowie. I mean, no, I think there's plenty of people who are as interesting. I just, I really wanted to learn and talk about David Bowie. And slowly drive yourself insane. Kinda. Mm-hmm. Oh, like you get to a point where you're like, I, I don't, I think I, I don't think I talked about anything. I think I left everything out. Yeah. I actually don't think this is going to teach anyone anything. <laughs> but also I have nine pages and I still have so much more to write. Yeah. What is wrong with me? Like when I, first of all, I barely ever like double space. It's pretty much always just like line, line, mm-hmm. line. Also, I do like the margins are like half a centimeter. Yeah. All around. So I'm like. I know it's only seven and a half pages, but you know what? It's probably like 20. Yeah. It's college, like, double space 20. Yeah. Woof. <laughs> um, and I, I had to, like, when I was setting myself up to do this, because I was bugging out. Why? There's so much. Oh, There's yeah. so much. It's kind of amazing how intricately detailed... David Bowie's life mm. was from start to finish. And like how hard it is though to find information on certain things. Yeah. You either stumble upon it or they don't fucking talk about yeah, it. Yeah, and it's usually like the really fun nuggets of information that you're like, "No, I want to put this in." Why can somebody on Google better have this? Oh my god. And you can't find it anywhere. Or like just trying to verify your facts of like a yeah. date of something or how it corresponds yeah. and you're just like, "Well, am I I don't want like somebody So that's the thing. I'm constantly afraid of somebody railing against me because they got something wrong. I'm going to say it up front. I'm probably going to get something wrong. Yeah. Maybe. There's very plausible. Also, I didn't put everything in here. Mm-hmm. I don't have 
we can't five possibly months do that of talking about David Bowie. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I wish I did, but I don't. So I had to remind myself when we started. One of our big things was we thought of our friends Amber and AJ who don't know <laughs> anything about musicians, yeah, or like know very little. Mm-hmm. And this is like it's not bare bones. It's it's like not a Wikipedia page. Yeah. But it's also this is not for the diehard David Bowie fan who already knows everything. Right. So this if you is, were this is your crash course in David Bowie like extended crash course. Yeah. This is for this is somebody no, who doesn't really know anything about him. I'm no Peter Jackson. Yeah. But I'm also not an M Night Shyamalan. Yeah. I don't know if that metaphor works, I, but I'm I get going it. with it. <laughs> I get it. You yeah. get it. Yeah. So Please go into this realizing maybe I'm going to miss something that you're like, why didn't you talk about that? And I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I don't have time. I'm wasting time explaining myself to you. (laughs) So let me tell you about the beer I'm drinking. Yeah. I don't even have to really six degrees of beer this. So from Single Cut, uh, I'm drinking Freeform Jazz Odyssey. And it's got this lovely little spaceship astronaut astronaut, spaceship astronaut (laughs) helmet on the front here. And I mean, if you know, you know. If you don't know, you're an idiot. Like Odyssey, Oddity, obviously Space yeah, Oddity. Right. Um, also, Freeform Jazz, you will come to discover in this episode that uh, Bowie is stupidly influenced by jazz music. So interesting. Yeah. All the jazz musics? I mean, at least some of the jazz musics. <laughs> he played the saxophone for a bit. Oh. So, I mean, yeah, he's got the jazz in him. Okay. Yeah. So, that's, uh, it's actually quite tasty. It is, you're probably like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, Schwarz you're right. beer. It's a Schweitz beer. It sounds like farts beer. Mm. Um, yeah, no, coconut chocolate Schwartz beer. Oh, It's a lager good. brewed with coconut and cocoa. And it's really tasty. Especially because I left it in the freezer for a minute and it mm. has like some of those ice chunks in it. Ooh. No, but it keeps I it like nice that. and cool. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you were like making fun of me. Now. No, I like that. <laughs> kind of like when you toss a soda in there mm. and you leave it for just a little bit too long and it gets a little slushy. I yeah, like yeah, that. slushy soda. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not quite a slushy beer, which is good. It's just got a couple little like, little, like floaties in there to be like, oh, it's nice and cool still. Mm. I'm like, yeah cool yeah it is yeah it is yeah it is it's cool you know what else is cool david bowie so let me get on this train okay <laughs> guys i'm still hung over from this weekend i am sorry yeah. i'm gonna do my best <laughs> but man i feel like fucking shit She's, she is definitely a trooper right now oh She's yeah. trooping through it real and i hard. definitely look like eddie from the iron maiden covers i'm i'm the trooper that's a nice thing though you know eddie's cool i like eddie's eddie. cool but like i don't want to look like <laughs> all right i mean I'm, i was trying to make you feel better <laughs> thanks anyway right cite your sources uh i have a lot of sources uh first of all i grabbed this book called bowie by a guy named mark spitz mm-hmm. and mark does spit a oh. lot of information uh-huh um i don't love this book so i'm kind of like perusing mm-hmm. through it grabbing what i'm finding interesting yep and supplementing the rest through just interviews articles as well as a fuck ton of documentaries there are a lot that you can find on youtube or yeah Vimeo. true that's so, kind of one good thing about david bowie is that there's a gazillion documentaries you can watch most of them are terrible oh yeah 
by the way, most are just like, here's like clips of things. And I'm like, there's no context to yeah, this. None. It's it's not great. But whatever, it's fine. Also, if you are a diehard Bowie fan, or perhaps you want to become one, the podcast you want to listen to, I like how I'm like, don't listen to this shit. Listen to yeah. a different podcast. It's called Off the Record. It's really good. The dude goes into a lot of detail, almost too much, like kind of pump the brakes. But what I appreciate is he does do interviews with people who knew Bowie. Oh, that's um, good. And he'll, after one episode, he'll supplement it, the next one with um, an interview with the person from that timeline. Oh. So it's nice. And like, so you don't have to listen to it, but you can if you want a little like padding on something. Yeah. So I've been appreciating that. It is really interesting. So highly suggest that. If you want more than what I'm going to give you Mm -hmm. and you don't want dick jokes, which (laughs) I'm sorry, what? I don't know why. Yeah. You wouldn't. You're missing out. I mean, that's the best part of our podcast. That's pretty much all our podcast is. (laughs) Major Tom, Ziggy Stardust, the Thin White Duke, the Goblin King, Aladdin Sane. These are just some of the personas that we have come to associate with David Bowie, one of the most legendary performers in history. And what do you even say about Bowie? His legacy is one written in fact and fiction. And all of this is by design. Not only does his music sound like something from out of this world, but he presents himself as not of our world. It's easy to hear the name David Bowie and think you get it because we've all seen the makeup, the glitter. We've all danced to modern love and we're heartbroken to hear Lazarus for the first time. We accept the mystery that is David Bowie. But this story is so much more than that. It's about someone who worked hard for everything he got. And instead of showcasing the struggle, he put on a display of a story of an alien who is just trying to make sense of this crazy world while exposing it to something shiny and exciting. However, it's important to acknowledge David the person, someone who knew what they wanted at a really young age and didn't stop till they got it. And, and, and actually, they, they never stopped even after that. Yeah. The time was 1947. The place was Brixton in South London, England. World War II was still there in the rearview mirror, and a war-torn England was just beginning to recover from the damage. I feel like deja vu. It's like we've been here before. <laughs> like every British artist like that we've ever talked God about? Goddamn British artist ever. <laughs> Did you know World War II was a thing? Oh my God. My God. War-torn Europe. <laughs> London. <laughs> Children with smeared dirt faces go to school with their books in a leather strap. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just trying to set the scene for you guys. You've you've done a really good job of it. It's like kind of cold, but not cold enough for a winter coat. But everybody's wearing like a dark pea coat and a hat. Oh, very nice hat. Against a background of crumbling buildings. And like, like industrial smoke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we've done it. This yeah. is it. This, and this right. is that is the exact thing I always picture. Every time. Every single time. <laughs> All the while, Peggy Burns and her partner, Hayward Stetton Jones. That's the name. But his friends called him John. Oh, sure. We're, we're starting off the year welcoming their son. David Robert Jones arrived on Earth on January 8th. His mother worked as a waitress at a local cinema, and his father did promotions for a children's charity. Okay, so were they not married? They were not at first. Oh, and was his actual last name Jones? Yes. Was his dad's last name Jones? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm sorry. I did not hear that part. No, that's, you know what? Clarification is important. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, additionally, David had an elder half-brother named Terry, who was from his mother's previous marriage. Oh, Terry. Yeah, he was like 11 years older. Wow. So quite the gap. Indeed. And David's childhood was nothing all that extraordinary. I mean, his parents weren't married when he first came along, but pretty soon after that, they changed that. Mm -hmm. The family was your average working class type, but it wasn't necessarily the most loving home. Yeah, this sounds like every fucking British artist literally that we've covered this whole time. This could be any number of the Beatles. This could be Lemmy. This could be uh, Phil Linet. This could be any of them. Yep. All right, cool. Yeah. Good, good. Now we're there. It's a real stiff upper lip atmosphere, mm -hmm. from Peggy especially. While John could show at least a little warmth and enthusiasm towards David, his mother was a bit more reserved for emotion. She just kind of like, you know, yeah. was like, you're making the house a mess and didn't get excited about anything David did. Sick of tripping over your shoes. <laughs> Whereas John could be like, oh, hey, you, you wrote a song. I'm going to hang it on the fridge where everyone can see it. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, Pop. This actually, though, might have had something to do with the fact that mental illness runs high up into her family tree. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get to the mental illness in the family. <laughs> I'm starting this off real quick. Yep. There's mental illness. This was a fact that would always plague David in the back of his head. The dark family secret of obscure illnesses like bipolar disease and schizophrenia. Stories of extended family members were whispered from time to time. And he worried that they would be talking about him one day like that. Isn't that kind of a mental illness in itself? Um, I mean, if you if you act upon it or if you let it inhibit you from living your life, I mean, yeah. I guess there's like there's like hypochondria, but then there's like the opposite of hypochondria where you make yourself sick because you're worried. Hyperchondria? Sure. Why yeah. not? And I will say, too, like. He he has a cousin who said we don't have a mental illness history in the family. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't know why weird flex, but OK. <laughs> um, I, maybe they don't want people to associate the family with mental illness, like, but it's also, it's fine. Yeah, it's like, fine. It's, it's part of life. And Dude, I don't think like, it's, it's fine. It's not like, it's good to know because you can check that shit when you're young and like, make sure you have it in check. So yeah. I don't know. So I will, I do want to throw that out there that after his death, his sister came out or his cousin, excuse me, was like, we didn't have mental illness. So I don't know. <sighs> Take from that what you will. Yeah. But his cold family life didn't stop him from expressing himself to the rest of the world. In school, he would be known as a real individual amongst his teachers and was showcasing his creativity even in the earliest of grades. In 1953, with the help of a newfangled piece of technology called the TV, <laughs> David's world would get much bigger. John bought one for the family so they could watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, boy. Like everyone did. Oh, boy. They were just handing out TVs like, watch the queen. Watch the queen. Come I guess on. that was their version of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> Everything changed when you saw the coronation of the queen, queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> I mean, like, all right. Yeah, that was all cool and shit. But nothing blew this young boy's mind like the world of sci-fi. Oh, yeah. I mean, because think about it. We're like 40s, 50s. Like sci-fi is getting hot. Yeah. Bitches loved sci-fi back then. He was still considered a bit young for the t visual tales of extraterrestrials and their faraway planets. And admittedly, he was kind of scared of it, too. No lost in space for this guy. He's like, oh, my God, I'm scared. <laughs> 
but he would sneak down at night and hide behind the couch while his parents watched. That's so, cute. Yeah, right? Like, I just picture, like, little Davy Jones, yeah. like, popping his little head up, saying, oh, I'm a little terrified of these aliens, but so cool. <laughs> and his parents are on opposite sides of the couch, not touching each other. And when they touch, he's like, oh, you touched me. <laughs> uh. Ugh. You get up and change the channel. No, you get up and change the channel. <laughs> they had like two channels. They had to flip yeah. between a knob. <laughs> rip a row. Nobody wanted to get up. Obviously, this became a massive influence for David, who already felt a bit different from his peers. He felt a bit of an alien himself, so he internalized this otherworldly narrative, which, as we know, is going to carry on into his career. Hmm, you don't say. Yeah. Never noticed. I know. I mean, you might be surprised to hear. <laughs> Like most kids, he was in the school choir, and teachers didn't really notice much in the realm of a strong singing voice, but they did praise him for his ability to harmonize effortlessly. Oh. And once I read that, I was like, oh yeah, like, he has great harmonies in a lot of his songs. Yeah. So, this checks, and it's all him. The organization John worked for would receive large donations of 45 vinyl records, and he would grab handfuls to bring home to the family. The especially exciting nights were the ones where he brought home some rare American imports. No. Mm. But those were the records David fell in love with. A little Elvis Presley, some Fats Domino, but nothing. Got deep into this boy's soul. This boy's hole. <laughs> Gotta pay the troll toll. He did. <laughs> like hearing Little Richard's Tutti Fruity. <laughs> Of course it would be Little Richard. You know what? Everything changed when he heard Little Richard's <laughs> Tutti Fruity. He even once said, quote, I had heard God. My heart nearly burst with excitement. I'd never heard anything even resembling this. It filled the room with energy and color and outrageous defiance. And of course it did. I mean, Little Richard is also just a huge early influence for David as far as just like outrageous performances. Yeah cross-dressing androgyny mm -hmm. like little richard didn't cross-dress but he just the way he dressed was very flamboyant he definitely still had like the done hair oh yeah he probably wore s some makeup that wasn't like lots noticeable. of jewelry lots of jewelry impeccable tailoring impeccable yeah so oh, God. even though he wasn't necessarily dressing like a woman he still had a feminine side to him that he wasn't afraid to show. Mm. And also, at that point, nobody really questioned it. Right. Because that just wasn't something, I guess, even if you did think, oh, shit, this person could kind of be maybe somewhat gay, <laughs> you still put the blinders on. Cause because he put on a hell of a show. Because he put on a hell of a show. I mean, tootie fruity. Yeah. Come on. Song of a generation. It's called Tutti Fruity, guys. <laughs> oh, Rudy. <laughs> David also had his older brother, Terry, who was a beatnik, really into jazz, and he would bring him to shows in London. He really admired his older brother and was happy that they were going out to check out some sweet live jazz shows. That's cute. Yeah. He really wanted to share his world with David because, like, Terry very much got the cold shoulder from his parents. Like, his mom was, I mean... She didn't like anybody. Yeah. And then, like, even John wasn't crazy about Terry. So, like, David was the only one in the house that was really, like, happy and excited and loved Terry. Well, shit. I know. So they shared so this for bond. Terry. I know. Oh, just wait. Oh, no. Yeah. It's never good. Oh, come on. All of this exciting music, 
acting as a complete contrast to the gray, dreary England, helped David to decide what he wanted to do with his life. He was going to be a musician. Specifically, he wanted to be one of the backup saxophonists for Little Richard. That's adorable. Right? Can you just see like little baby Davy Bowie being like, or Davy Jones saying, I'm go back up little Richard on the saxophone. <laughs> Saxophone's <laughs> bigger <laughs> than him. <laughs> I, oh, I love it. Oh, God. With that, his father got him a white acrylic Grafton alto sax to begin oh. his musical journey with. Fancy. It is. It looks really sick. Like, yeah. the white acrylic looks so cool. Yeah. Of course, he figured lessons were in order, so... In an issue of Melody Maker, he read about the legendary baritone sax player, Ronnie Ross. After doing some digging, he found that Ronnie was relatively local to him, residing in Abington. David figured, what the hell? Give him a call. Ask if he could get some sax lessons. Mm -hmm. Ronnie told him, like, I'm a jazz player. I don't give sax lessons. (laughs) But David wouldn't hear of it and begged Ronnie to just give him a chance. Finally, the professional relented and asked, all right, what, what are you doing this Saturday? (laughs) And David said nothing. He's like, all right, come on by. After getting a look at David, Ronnie saw potential and gave him lessons every week. But that only lasted a few months until David decided, I don't want to take lessons anymore because I'm a kid and lessons suck. Yeah. That's like the last (laughs) thing any kid wants to do. Like, oh, God, on my Saturday? Are you kidding me? No. Hell no. I mean, but that didn't mean he stopped pursuing music. He did continue to practice saxophone as well as picking up the ukulele and the piano. Hmm. He's like, I'm going to be Mozart talented here. <laughs> but on my own time. I don't want to go to lessons on a Saturday morning. I want like, to sleep in. Thank you. I have better things to do like skip rocks at the river. I mean, he's got to skip rocks at the river. Hit rocks with sticks. Do a lot of things with rocks. Because I rock. <laughs> oh my God. Get out. <laughs> When he got into high school, he hung out with other guys who were into the same kind of music, and they would get together in little skiffle groups after school. Mm-hmm. Because again, skiffle. skiffle. Because drink, this is where you know, we are. Listeners, just drink every time you've heard this 20 times before <laughs> in another British artist episode. Yeah. During this time, he would create a close friendship with George Underwood. They bonded over their love for the same musical groups, especially Little Richard. And they went to one of his shows together and had the shit scared out of them when he faked a heart attack on stage (laughs) only to jump up from the dead and start another tune. Oh, that's awesome. I know. They they both told the story. It was like, little Richard just grabs his chest and falls over and somebody like backstage runs forward and is like, oh, my God, is there a doctor in the house? And then everyone's freaking out, and David David Jones is like, I think we're about to witness history. We're going to see little Richard die on stage. And then little Richard just fucking pops up and goes, bop, 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 bamboo. And you're like, because of fucking course he did. Yeah. And everybody goes crazy. I mean, and they did. Or they just get really pissed. Their shit-stained pants and all just went crazy. Yep. Can you imagine? I'm sure in Britain, too, they're like, we don't have a sense of humor yet. (laughs) We're still quite cold from the war. (laughs) David would remember this pageantry and how the audience reacted. He would make note that putting on a performance would be crucial for a good show. Mm -hmm. By the time the boys were 15, they started their own band with some of the friends, and they called it the Conrads. With a K. Conrads or Conrad. comrades? Conrads. Conrads. Like, we love gotcha. you, Conrad. 
Oh, yes, we do. We love you, Conrad. What is that even for? You know what? Don't answer that. Bye bye, Birdie, isn't it? Oh, how did I know that? And you didn't. Also, because I fucking hate Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, it's a terrible fucking thing. I hate musicals. (laughs) George was lead vocals while David backed him up on vocals as well. And also on his sax. They became fairly popular in town, performing at weddings or in local socials. The social gatherings just loved the boys. They even made an attempt at a record deal. They hired a man named Eric Easton to be their agent, and he would later go on to serve as the Rolling Stones' manager. Oh, good so they're for giving him. him his first experience. You're welcome, Rolling Stones. You're welcome. After recording a single called I Never Dreamed, they had Eric submit it to Decca Records. Unfortunately, the label was not particularly impressed with the Conrad's somewhat generic beat sound. Aw. Discouraged but not out, David and his friends continued onwards. They were still just teenagers anyway. I mean, there's tons of other things to think about, like pussy and possibly dick. Oh. It is well known how much of a horn dog David was. Yeah. Like, homeboy, even sent in interviews, he'd fuck anything that moved. Once he claimed his first sexual encounter was with another guy when they were in their teens. Mm -hmm. Didn't say who it was, just like, oh, it was another... I don't yeah. even know if it was a boy in his class or anything. Just another teenager. Mm-hmm. And let me just address this up front. Throughout his career, Bowie's sexuality has been debated. He's gone from saying he slept with men and women to full out saying he's gay to denying any sexual encounters with the same sex. It's very confusing. Interesting. Many friends and family would later say that like they never saw him with dudes, only chicks. And then others would say that they have seen him engaged with the same sex. No doubt all of this helps to keep Bowie shrouded in mystery. Mm-hmm. Just how he likes it. And like I get it. Some people are going to be like, well, it doesn't matter. And I mean, it doesn't, but it does. It doesn't matter now, but back then, and for a big majority of his career, it did matter. And I actually think it still does matter. He's very much touted as an icon for the LGBTQ plus community, especially for bisexuals, who mm-hmm. are still very much marginalized and treated like they're not real. Yeah. That like people don't take them seriously that bisexuality is not real it's like oh you're just saying that so you don't like hurt your parents feelings or something but you're, or they're you're saying, gay though, or or right? like oh you're just straight you just want attention or yeah. oh you like are just greedy you, yeah you'll fuck anything and it's like but also like so what if i'll fuck anything yeah. that doesn't make me greedy also doesn't hurt you so yeah. like it, who gives a fuck so having bowie's bisexuality being confirmed, I think, is important mm-hmm. to the gay community. Yeah. The gay plus universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, for what it's worth, I think he definitely was bi. Because there are some stories yeah. that you hear and I'm like, nah, he was fucking men. Which is great. Have fun. I think, I I think he was somebody who was like, yeah, I'll fuck guys. But he preferred relationships with women. Right. Which is great. Sure. Yeah. You do you, brah. Mm-hmm. I ain't going to stop you. There is no doubt that David was into the ladies, though. In fact, it was in Chasing One where he got hit the most iconic part of his look. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's get the story straight right off the bat. David Bowie does not have two different colored eyes. No. He does not. People to this day still say that. I'm like, nope, you're wrong. Yeah. He suffers from anisocaria, a permanently dilated pupil in his left eye. Anisocaria. I think it's Anna Sicoria. That would be a good drag name. Ooh. 
Anna, Anna Sicoria. And then you give yourself like a weird eye. Yeah. Eh. Just have one weird contact in the whole yeah, time. Right? That'd be fun. <laughs> Somebody must be doing that. Yeah. How did this happen, though? Well, it revolves around a nice girl named Carol Goldsmith, someone that both David and George were smitten kitten with. Aww. George happened to get to her first and asked her on a date. When David got word of this, he did his friend dirty. And right before the date, he called up George and said that Carol canceled on him. What? Yup. However, she did not cancel on him. Did he go on the date instead? So she stayed out for an hour waiting until she realized that George stood her up. Yeah. And then David swooped in and was like the comforting, like, oh, that's so wrong. I don't know why he so did sorry. that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and when George put all that together and realized what his friend did, he was quite understandably pissed. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Really shitty. You don't that was do a that. really shitty thing to do, David. Like, you especially don't do that to your friend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the next time he saw David, he gave him a nice fist to the face and walked away. Uh huh. He deserved it. Yeah, he did. Well, his his punch was much uh, much stronger than he thought. <laughs> a little later, George's dad went to him saying, I didn't know you got into a fight with David Jones. He was confused to how his dad would even know until he discovered that David was in the hospital and there was a oh chance he was going to lose his vision. Oh, my God. I know. George rushed to the hospital and tearily apologized to John Jones. Fortunately, David would come out of this seeing just fine. But his pupil was never going to go back down again. So George regretted the whole thing. But in enough time, his friend would not only forgive him, but thank him for giving him his most exotic feature. Honestly. Seriously. And like, once you know that too, like when you look at pictures, like, oh yeah, clearly that pupil's just always dilated. Yeah, like super dilated. Yeah. It's not like David needed the boost though, because he was definitely a traditionally handsome man. Mm Mm-hmm. He was too young to be a teddy boy, but he was still stylish. He kept his hair in that rock and roll pompadour and stayed on top of the latest fashions. He was also super into American culture, and I think that really helped him to know what was going to be the next new hotness. Makes him look exotic. Sure. (laughs) I would never say American and exotic in the same sentence, but here we are. Post-war England? That's exotic. Man, wouldn't that be nice to not feel like trash? Yeah. Yeah. At this point, school was the last thing on his mind, much to the chagrin of most of his teachers who knew David to be an intelligent person. There was only one teacher who cut him slack, his art teacher, Owen Frampton, who also happened to be the father of his school buddy, Peter. I was going to say that Peter Frampton, Peter Frampton. It drives me crazy because on everything, like every book, every article, even in the podcast, people blow over the fact that he not only went to school with Peter Frampton, but like jammed with him and like learned art from his father. And I'm like, why does no one else think this is cool? I get I think this is cool because I get the impression that a lot of people refuse to acknowledge Peter Frampton's like existence in the musical world because he's kind of a joke. No, he's not. Yes, he is. I like that one song. Where he makes his guitar talk. That's like every Peter Frampton song, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. You know what? People take Bon Jovi seriously and what Richie Sambora makes his guitar talk. He doesn't make his guitar talk. (laughs) Wow, wow. Yeah, that's a voice box. (laughs) I'm well aware of what it is, but I like saying you make your guitar talk. I don't know. I thought it was cool. I didn't realize we don't like Peter Frampton. I mean, I think Peter Frampton is fine, but historically, he has been made fun of. That's not fair. It, it, 
Life isn't fair. He's a nice man. Nothing's ever fair. You know what? I am going. Peter Frampton's a nice man. I'm going to start wearing a shirt that just says Peter Frampton <laughs> is a nice man and he deserves better. Yeah. I'm wearing to a Peter Frampton shirt. Like, I don't love his music, though. I mean, it's fine. It doesn't yeah. move me. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe he's not a, a nice guy. We don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah. If Peter Frampton's not a nice guy, please let us know. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to sit up here like an asshole saying he's nice and turns out he's a dick bag. Yeah. I have a feeling he has been wrongfully maligned for a long time, but yeah. I couldn't tell you if I'm right. Same. No, All right. Somebody well, stand, will tell us. Until somebody tells me otherwise, I stand by it. <laughs> Owen was that typical art teacher who saw the good in his students and let them express themselves outside of academics. He would let the boys keep their instruments in his classroom so they could practice their after school. That's nice. Cool teacher. Yeah. Always the art teacher. Not always, but... Lots of times the art teacher. Lots of times the art teacher. I've had some terrible art teachers. Yeah. David would take whatever time he could find to practice. He took music seriously and was determined to make it in showbiz. He was a bit dismayed at the lack of commitment from his bandmates, especially once they graduated and George went on to art school. Mm. The Conrads didn't really last too much after that, but David would eventually move on to his next band, the King Bees. King Bees? Yep. Honey. Get it? King King Bees. Bees. Honey. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. (laughs) Whatever. Mm-hmm. However, music just wasn't going to pay the bills yet, so he still needed to find himself a job. Yeah. He ended up getting a gig as a junior visualizer for an adver- ad- advertising agency. Oh. I don't know why I couldn't say advertising. <laughs> but ultimately, that was just a job where he learned the basics of cut and paste and fetched coffee and tea for everybody else. I, I do that job. Right? Like, it's not bad. I like cutting and pasting things. I like coffee and tea. Yeah. I like coffee and I like tea. I had to. I'm sorry. (laughs) Still, he managed to pick up some key skills in regards to promotion that would later come to be quite useful for him. David also lucked out when one of the bosses not only encouraged his musical passions, but sent him on errands to buy LPs from the local record store. It's kind of nice. Right? He's like, go buy some records for me. Get yourself something nice, too. What? Right? Uh, there he would spend more than his lunch break perusing the selections of vinyl available. Hmm. He didn't stop pursuing his goals, and with a combination of what he learned at the ad agency and his father's advice, David wrote a letter to John Bloom to manage them. To do for them what Brian Epstein did for the Beatles. To sell Davy Jones and the King Bees and make another million. Now maybe you're like me and wondering who the hell John Bloom is. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he apparently made his fortune selling washing machines. What? And Wait, no, that, that oh, sentence oh, wait for doesn't... It. Wait for it. He also helped to start the washing machine wars of 1962 to I'm 1964. Sorry. I'm sorry, what? Washing machine wars. You know, <laughs> the, carnage of, the carnage from the washing machine wars. I'm just wars. picturing fucking battle bots, but with old ass washing machines. <laughs> On, like, little wheels, like... Actually, no, wasn't there, like... I feel like there was a cartoon where, like, they were, like, having washer machine battles and, like, one person would be on one and one person would be on the other and they'd, like, be jousting because they'd be, like, bouncing around. Oh, fuck, Because they walk that? across the floor. If you have an uneven floor, they just walk they just when the waddle, spin yeah. cycle goes. Yeah. So that's what it was. That's I hilarious. 
I don't know, something about drastically reducing prices and putting the power back into the hands of consumer. Apparently, it was a big fucking deal for washing machines. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure the housewives of England were just sitting there with just chomping on their teeth when, I mean, this, when these wars were going. I mean, if, if, if he helped to make the power settings a little bit stronger... Yeah, they might have. They might have appreciated it. If you know what I mean. If he had made a washing machine that sings to me like my current one from 2021 sings to me when mm-hmm. the load is done, I mean, he could have made even more money. Honestly, that's I- the best part of doing laundry now is that my washing machine sings to me. And you're like, what? Oh, my laundry's done. Oh, it's singing. singing to me. I'm gonna wait till it's done. <laughs> I. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to let it sing the song of its people before you take the load out of I it. I have definitely been in a hurry to switch my clothes over, but I was like, come on, song, hurry up. I can 100% yeah, open the store, but, but I, don't need, want to. I need to hear the song. <laughs> uh, so, also, you might be like me and wonder why the hell he wrote this due to letter, and honestly, I am not sure. I, I couldn't figure that out. Um, but from this, while John Bloom was not going to do anything with this band, he Aww. did hook them up with an actual showbiz manager named Leslie Kahn. He got the King Bees into a subsidiary of Decca Records called Vocalion. 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 Okay. Vocalion? Vocalion. I'm going to say Vocalion. Sure. Despite the backing of a record label, respectable TV and radio promotion, Davy Jones and the King Bee's song Liza Jane still didn't go anywhere. The band would soon be dropped from the label and David would promptly follow. So no more King Bees, Mm. honey. He and Leslie thought of an ideal publicity stunt, though. For David to be a part of a group called the Manish Boys, who also created a non-existent group called Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. At this point, David's hair was at his shoulders and then some. This just sounds like a band comprised of men's rights ad- advocates. It's not even as like dumb as that. <laughs> it's uh, it's still funny. Yeah. This is still funny. It's still kind it's still of funny. It's taking the piss. But it sounds like it's a whole bunch of men's rights dudes. <laughs> The group would appear on BBC shows at night claiming to be fed up with the unfair treatment of men that chose to grow their hair long, sick of other guys harassing them for it and asking them if they want their purses to be held or being referred to as darling. Darling. Yeah. Uh Because masculine men would be like, oh, hello, darling. Yeah. And you're like, just because I have long hair doesn't mean I'm not a dude. Why you gotta be like that? I mean, it was obviously just a goofy short-lived stunt. This was not anything serious. It was just another attempt for David to get noticed. Yeah. And it was still effective in keeping David in the spotlight, even for just a moment longer. David would leave the Manish Boys pretty quickly, because it was just a random cover blues group. It's hilarious. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, really, at this point, I feel like I'm not even telling you, like, a real story that happened. This is all fake. <laughs> Washing Machine Wars, uh, the Manish yeah. Boys, what the fuck? I think we've lost the plot here. I feel like I lost... <laughs> you know what? I definitely lost the plot by this point. This is where it comes back a little bit, though. Okay. So, from there, he went on to join the Lower Third, a blues rock band akin to the likes of The Who. But David wasn't content with just doing what everyone else was, and he threw in a cover of Chim Chimmery, you know, from Mary Poppins... Was gonna say, 
Ja, Dick Van Dyke. Chim, chimmery, chim, chimmery, chim, chim, chiroo. Yeah, that's how the song goes. Because why not? Sure. <laughs> it certainly helped them stand out. Unfortunately, not stand out enough. They auditioned for a talent agency who were real Shania Twain about no. that. Why is everyone Shania Twain in this story? So, I read it at one point. A good argument is that David Bowie was just a little too young. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he was just, like, he was where the Beatles were a few years before him. Yeah. So, like, he was he just was five just, years off. He was just missing everything. He and was also, just missing like, the beat. I imagine that this age, he was probably quite small and he was always very skinny mm-hmm. and, like, you know, awkward teeth and a fucking wonky eye. So, like, <laughs> people probably look at him and they're like, you look like a fucking alien. Like, I don't know what I can do with you. <laughs> I, that's I don't know if the looks were as big a deal, but that's also plausible. He at least was very stylish. Yeah. And in general, people found him attractive. Mm-hmm. I think he just lacked, like, that, what he eventually gains. Like, the charisma that he eventually picks up. The charisma. He doesn't have the charisma yet. Like, right yeah. now, he's just kind of like, I'm really talented, and you should definitely put me on your label. And then, like, the agency is like, I don't know you. They're, yeah. they're Mariah carrying <laughs> yeah. the shit know. out of this poor kid. I don't know you. I don't know you. So I, he's just he's just a little late. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I understand why he felt, I don't want to say entitled, but I think he felt justified in being like, I'm talented, fucking pick me up. Because he's doing the shit that, like, people were doing before him. Mm-hmm. But now everybody's seen it. He hasn't yeah. found that that He new, hasn't new found thing the the. Th- Different thing ting. that's gonna he hasn't found the itty bitty ting that's gonna separate the vanilla ice from the queen. Exactly. Actually, so in <laughs> this agency, uh they gave they gave him like a, a write out of like what each person thought. And mm-hmm. some of the choice criticisms include amateur vocalist who sings the wrong notes and an inoffensive pleasant nothing, which I think is some real shade. That is the most shady comment I have ever heard in my life. Right. The library is open. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's like a whole sheet of this library. And I'm like, holy. What? They fucking read him for filth on those things. One person was all about them, though, and loved their cover of Chim Chimmery. <laughs> so, like, there's that. You had one person was like, nah, this shit slaps. Real big Julie Andrews fan over here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How's your cover of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Spoonful of sugar? Can I hear it? It's in the works, but we'll play it next time. Oh, Troy. <laughs> Seeing that the lower thirds were getting him nowhere, like thus far every band he's been in, David left that group to join another group called The Buzz. Because he really likes bees. He really has a theme going. He really does. But that band didn't work out either, so then he moved on to the Riot Squad, which has nothing to do with bees. That's kind of a cool name, though. Yeah. I like that name. Look, as, as Davy Jones, he switched bands as often as we switch hair colors. That's that's often. Yes. That's why I had to stop talking about which bands he was joining. Yeah. Because, like, there's, literally, there's 20. There's just some, ba- some bands, some artists that you're like... I have to glaze over all of the band changes and all of the band member swap mm-hmm, outs because mm-hmm. I I'm going to confuse not just myself but everyone who's listening. I'm turning this shit into a Krispy Kreme donut, just glazing it. Yeah. 
He was growing increasingly frustrated at the fact that no matter what he tried, he just wasn't making it. His girlfriend and muse at the time, Dana Galepsi, once talked about going to his home to meet his parents and noticed how cold and quiet it was while his parents ate dinner in front of the TV. And after his parents left the room, David turned to Dana and said, I want to get out of here and I will do whatever it takes. He was mm. trying to get the fuck out. So his yeah. frustration is just boiling over because he needs to just GTFO. You got a pork chop sandwich yourself out He's of there. He's trying. And it's, I mean, it's that's the thing, too, that must be so frustrating. He's putting in the work. Yeah. It's not like he's just like walking in and expecting to have something handed to him. He's trying. Yeah. Something he decided to do was not get confused with another up and coming Davy Jones from America. Ooh. I know which one you're talking about. I mean, I, I think, don't we all? I'm a believer. <laughs> I saw her face. <laughs> yup. Last train to Clarksville. Yeah. Yup. It's just a Pleasant Valley Sunday. Actually, these songs bop. They are. The monkeys were fucking great, guys. Also, Rip fucking Michael. Oh, Mike Nesmith Mike Nes- just died. The hot one. He was the hot one? I mean, I thought he was. He seemed very tall and I liked his beanie. <laughs> he did have a good beanie. He had a good head of hair under that beanie, he too. He did. Yeah. But also, like, very talented musician, seemed like a lovely human. Yes, he was. And his mother invented liquid paper. Oh, wow. She invented the original whiteout. Shit, that's like inventing post-it notes, but real. It's like inventing the resin that goes on post-it notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she could have gone to her high school reunion and said she, that and yeah. not be lying. <laughs> Janine Garofalo could not out her. Exactly. (laughs) So a fresh new name was in order. So he went to his love for all things American for inspiration. He eventually came upon a story of Jim Bowie, a pioneer who fought in the Alamo and developed the well-known Bowie knife. And so David Bowie was born. He named himself after a knife. Yeah, he named himself after a stabby stabby. He's like, I'm David, but I'm also going to stab the shit out of you. He's <laughs> like, should I go with David Bowie or David stabby stabby? <laughs> I don't know. They mm. like them both. I know. It was actually just a coin toss. It was. David Bowie could have been David stabby stabby. <laughs> and he was And you know what? And he wasn't. This is how, that's how fate handled We missed handled out. Things. But you know what? I'm I'm okay with what we got. David Bowie does roll off the tongue it easier. Does. It does. In 1966, David was introduced to talent manager Kenneth Pitt, who took to this budding artist seeing the obvious ta- untapped talent there. With the help of Kenneth, David was able to move out of his parents' home and get to understand the business side of things. It was also pretty obvious to everyone that um, the 40-some-odd-year-old Kenneth was really attracted to the charismatic near-20-year-old Bowie. Mm. Mm. It is believed that the two did have something of a sexual relationship, perhaps more of a convenience for David and more of actual affection for Kenneth. This is kind of like uh, Brian Epstein and like John Lennon, except oh. David Bowie is better than John Lennon. Yeah. But it's kind of like that. Yeah. Well, Bowie and John Lennon do become good friends later. Yeah. They probably swap like, stories about managers. Arguably, John Lennon was um, less accepting, I would say. Yeah, of, probably. Of, you know, his gay manager. So, yeah. I would, yeah, There's yeah, that. Yeah, There's mm, that. Mm, mm, mm. 
David would listen to his manager's phone calls and pay attention to how he would handle business. Around this time, he also decided to stop with all of these fucking bands and just try to make it as a solo artist. <laughs> Probably the better idea. Yeah, like stop joining bands. Yeah. I suppose you stop joining already established bands. Like just yeah. do your own thing, bro. They're just holding you back. Yeah. Kenneth got David a deal with a new offshoot of Decca Records called Darum. He brought his client's strongest material at the time, songs like The London Boys and Rubber Band, to vie for a publishing contract. Mm -hmm. So it worked, and the first thing released was a single called The Laughing Gnome. Oh no, you sent this to me. Wow. It exists. It is a thing. It's there. You can listen to it. Bowie has since disavowed this song. Thank fucking God. It is the most terrifying thing I have heard in I a very long time. I don't blame him. It's like, ooh, honey. What? Who held you at gunpoint <laughs> and made you record this song? Guys, <laughs> it is literally terrifying. Actually, one of the documentaries, uh, the guy who helped produce the song, they he talked about like how they created it and like... They have, like, clips of David Bowie singing the gnome parts really slowly uh-huh. so that he could speed it up, like you do uh, with Alvin and yeah. the Chipmunks. Mm-hmm. And, like, he talked about all the techniques and stuff that they use. I'm like, honey, no one takes this song seriously. Yeah, no. I was like, I put, I put it on, like, an hour after you sent it to me. And I was like, what is this Leonard Nimoy Bilbo Baggins <laughs> bullshit? Yes. And yeah. then I heard the gnome and I oh. was like, No. You're out. I get it. I've had a weekend. I am really trying hard not to barf my brains out. And this is not helping. You're like, (laughs) is this real or is this just a hallucination from a hangover? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Am I asleep? Am I? Where am I? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've heard it so many times that (laughs) it's growing on me in a really weird way. It's... I enjoy the end when he starts like laughing at himself for like, doing this, this fucking stupid ridiculous fucking song. Yes. <laughs> That's like that redeems it because it becomes less serious. Yes. And then you're like, okay, this isn't like a precursor to the Leprechaun movie. <laughs> oh my God. Like, but is it? Though? But it could be. I don't know. Look, it is a real dumb thing to release if you want to be taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I should have sent you more, but this is a standout. But Bowie's stuff was kind of like this back then. I listened it to a few a more of the songs. Whimsical yeah. In a way where you're like, no one's going to take you seriously, honey. It really is like Leonard Nimoy's Bilbo Baggins It's song. a lot of Leonard Nimoy Bilbo Baggins <laughs> But time. I kind of respect that song a little bit more. I mean. Because it's supposed it's to be Bill Boy Baggins. Bill Boy Baggins. <laughs> Bill Boy Baggins. Uh, yeah. In 1967, David Bowie released his first LP, a self-titled with 14 tracks. And uh, you can definitely see some early prototypes of what we will come to know as Bowie's musical style. But overall, this album ain't it. That is trying to find the tiniest little nugget in a sea of bullshit. It's... Again, I've had to listen to it a couple times, and um, it exists. Yeah. It's that corn kernel in the sea of shit. There were a couple songs that, like, later on in Bowie's career, he did revisit them and mature them, Mm -hmm. and they actually sound 
really fucking good and the themes come across a lot better. Okay. So it really was just like a record of its time. Yeah. So he's still not writing his own stuff right well, now. He is, but he's just doesn't but he's know still what handing, he's doing. He's still getting handed like these ridiculous songs. Oh no, he wrote these. He wrote the fucking no. gnome song? He wrote it. <sighs> this puts so many layers onto this garbage pile. <laughs> Okay. Okay. You know what? Fine. So it's 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 all very like sixties rock and folk inspired. It's very Donovan. It is. It it, that's. I was like, who does this sound like? Donovan. Donovan. Absolutely Donovan. All right, we got it. Um, but it really wasn't anything that could impress the masses. Yeah. No. Especially since it came out the same week as Sgt. Pepper's. Yep. No. Nope. Fucked. You railroaded, my friend. Like, even if this was good. Yeah. You can't even blame matter. this on Sgt. Pepper's, though. Sgt. <laughs> Pepper did not hold you at oh. gunpoint in that recording studio. Sgt. <laughs> Pepper didn't even know, like, was passing by you, didn't even see you. No. No. I'm sorry. On that steam engine train, just plowing over you you are you are just a casualty of the washing machine wars (laughs) at this point (laughs) for what it's worth david's lyrics were a lot more like stories about isolation and being misunderstood than just like some hot and groovy like chick that he knew yeah i mean he had a couple things like that but there is a lot of depth in some of these songs. Mm-hmm. Please, Mr. Gravedigger is about a murderer who is overwhelmed with guilt and visits the gravesite yes. of his child victim. I listened to that one and I was like, ooh, first of all, this is going on my spooky playlist. It is. It's so Second good. Second of all, I was listening to the lyrics and I was like, I like how they recorded it to yes. make it sound like he was in the middle of digging a grave. And the whole time you're wondering the fuck is he doing like why is he just walking through the woods or something yeah. in the rain and, he's and then like, you get he, to like, the, the sneezing and like you hear the, like, <laughs> yeah, he the rain and he's like oh excuse me <laughs> like who are you talking to i love it but also you get to the end and he's like by the way i this is the child that i murdered and now i'm digging your grave <laughs> now like, i have to kill you because yeah, i told you yeah and i like I got it. I was like, oh, fuck. This is deep. Yeah. Like, there is some good shit here. Yeah. This is deeper than the grave he's digging. Ah. Nah. I mean, it probably was. Digging graves is hard. It's a lot of work. <laughs> then you should have made the grave digger dig his own grave oh. and then kill him so you didn't have to do it. Yeah. You fucked that up. Still a good song. Still a good song. I like it a lot. <laughs> then there's She Got Medals, and it's about a woman <laughs> yes! who gender bends to serve in the army. Okay, wait, it's about a woman that gender bends or is it about a guy who went into the army and came out and decided to be a woman? That's what I interpreted. Oh, see, it. I interpreted it as a woman playing as a man. You know no, what? No, I got dude looks like a lady vibes from this. Dude looks like <laughs> The point is it's gender bending like at its best yeah. and earliest. That's why I was a little confused because I was like, I was just waiting for the bomb to drop and for him to say something incredibly off color about it. And he didn't. So I was like, it's a celebratory song. I'm still not entirely comfortable with this because I didn't look up the lyrics. So I was just going by what I was listening to while I was drying my hair today. So I was like, I need to revisit this one to see if I am totally okay with it. Yeah. Because it could have gone either way, honestly. Yeah. 
No, I think it's it's I think another one where it's like if he revisits if he ever revisited that like later in his life could be really good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But also maybe as of its time. I don't know. Look, like while these subjects truly hold some depth, just the accompanying music doesn't help it. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah. And I don't give a fuck what May says, Love You Till Tuesday fucking sucks. <laughs> Did you listen to Love You Till Tuesday? No, I didn't. So it's like, give me a heart on Sunday. I love oh, you till no. Tuesday. And I'm like, no. Oh, this is like some, I want to hold your hand. Don't you fucking do that Beatles bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Still just calling it, don't you fucking yeah. do that. <laughs> David was very much influenced by the grandiose. Things like vaudeville and music hall acts like Anthony Newley. In fact, not only was he inspired by Mr. Newley, he kind of ripped off his singing style. Cool. Yeah, I guess Mr. Mr. Newley did not love that. I wouldn't think so. He, he did want David like, that bloke stole my fucking singing voice. <laughs> he ursulated me. He didn't say that. Oh, yeah. I said that. He, I don't even know who <laughs> Ursula is. But I know he did that to me. (laughs) One day they'll make a movie about it. (laughs) They got this whole story wrong. (laughs) I'm not a mermaid. She's got eight legs. (laughs) Seven vaginas. (laughs) Maybe more. (laughs) It was actually for an understandable reason, though. David was insecure of his singing voice and had a tendency to music the sound of singers he liked. And he really liked the way Tony Newley sounded. So he's like, I'll just sing like that. Oh. So, like, I get that because that's kind of how I learned to sing when I was a kid is I didn't know how to fucking sing. So I just, like, sing like people around me. Yeah. I mean, that's what everybody like that's does when they do sing that. along to the radio. Seriously. Yeah. So, like, it's it's fine. It's fine. And he eventually, like, you know grows in his own i feel like but the album flopped surprise surprise <laughs> no way yeah critics ripped it apart if they even bothered to care and then darren would soon after drop david from their label uh, that's not his fault you made him record a terrible album i mean they didn't make him he again he, he did just it. did it he did it he did it he did it he should have named himself david stabby stabby <laughs> that would have been that would have fixed everything that would have fixed it Discouraged, David took some time for himself to reassess what he was doing. He began to study Buddhism in earnest, encouraged by his brother Terry. His older brother came back from serving in the military, and they were spending a good chunk of time together. Something seemed a little off with Terry, but a certain event really showed David how ill he truly was. Oh, no. Wanting to repay his brother for all the encouragement and inspiration throughout the years, David took Terry to a cream concert. Once the music and lights started, Terry began to have an episode and needed to be brought outside. He fell to the ground, convulsing and shouting that the ground was on fire and he was being pulled into the sky. David was terrified and didn't know what to do besides to stand and watch. Not long after, Terry was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Not long after that, he would be admitted into the Crane Hill Hospital for Mental Illness. But there's no mental health issues in their family. Wow. I got nothing. I got nothing. I, I don't know. But also family. that fucking sucks. Yeah. And for the rest of Terry's life, he would be what? institutionalized. Really? Because it was just that bad. Wow. And like, I think he would get out once. I feel like he either escaped or got let out Um, and would like try to take his meds, but then stop taking his meds because he thought he was better. I mean, it's also the late 60s. Yeah. 67. Like and like, they don't fully understand mental illness. 
And usually the, at this point anyway, the medication that they have you on could potentially be more dangerous than anything else. Yeah. I mean, it's, it just was a shit time. Yeah. There wasn't much he could do. Was he in a war? Or did no, he just I th- go he just, through? I just read that he served in the military. Oh, okay. Um, I don't think it was a long time. He might have actually gotten discharged because of his mental illness, but I could be wrong. Mm. I, I don't remember. Um, again, a lot of fucking information, kids. Yeah. After seeing the mythical Burns mental illness firsthand, David once again feared falling into the same fate. Perhaps that's why he began to play around with different personas when performing. Yeah. As a way to kind of be in control of that and in control of his fear. And also not show everybody everything all at once. 100%. Not be vulnerable on Mm -hmm. stage because you're being your authentic self. Right. So play acting, being a persona is definitely an easy way to hide when you are, when every single set of eyeballs is on you. Seriously. That fall, he fell into some happier news when he discovered his song, When I Live My Dream, was being used in a show by the great performer Lindsay Kemp. He was well known for his fantastic mime shows and even studied under Marcel Marceau. Oh, yeah. Cool. Lindsay was chuffed as puffs to see David in the front row of the audience one night, and the two met up after the show. Once again, another mentor to Bowie would be head over heels but also see what this young guy could be capable of. Mm -hmm. The two made an agreement. David would work with Lindsay to create music for his shows and in return get performance lessons. It was a great opportunity to learn more about body work and also how to be subtle yet effective as a performer. And again, they probably had a sexual relationship too. Yeah. I mean, whatever, that's fine. It was through his performances with Lindsay that he met Hermione Farthingale. Wow. That is the most English name I have ever heard in my life. I literally paused to let you have that reaction. Yeah. I wrote that. I'm like, I should pause, pause for Ashley. <laughs> Dramatic pause. <laughs> she was a ballet dancer and was also learning with Kemp. Uh, they ended up having a dance. Uh, David and Hermione end up having the dance together in one of the shows. And they immediately have a connection. She became David's first love. Hmm. From then on, they were inseparable, and they would create a performance group called Feathers, along with friend John Hutch Hutchinson. Feathers was a mixed media of dance, mime, music, and poetry. They would perform shows for a year or so to mild success. But everything had to stop when Hermione was offered a role in a film called Song of Norway, which, as the name would suggest, was happening in Norway. Yep, that makes sense. (laughs) They both knew she couldn't pass up on this opportunity. And they also knew it was the end of their relationship. Oh, that sucks. Within a few weeks of her moving, David discovered Hermione had moved on with someone else, and the entire thing just crushed him. Aww. Later, he would write a song called A Letter to Hermione that would show up on his next album. So no, Taylor Swift is not the only artist to call out an ex in a song. Yeah, she never was the first one and won't be the last. Yeah. So please Can we stop shitting our pants stop. over Taylor Swift? Can we just stop? And I'm not getting over this. I don't like Taylor Swift. I don't either. All right. Cool. I'm glad we're Creed. <laughs> At this point, David was absolutely lost. He was haunted by his family's mental illness, dumped by his one true love, no longer collaborating with Lindsay due to the love of his life. Lindsay was not very happy about Hermione and David. Oh. His musical career was going nowhere, and he felt like he was just floating in the ether with absolutely no control over his life. Yeah. 
He went to the movies one day and checked out 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh boy. Escape. You know what? Escapism. Mm It's beautiful. And like many others, he was moved by what he was seeing on screen. He felt a connection to the main character, an astronaut floating alone in space searching for meaning. And then inspiration struck him. He went home and wrote about space and isolation. The resulting song was called Space Oddity. Mm -hmm. Obviously taking from Space Odyssey. Right. Taking the current fascination for space discovery and connecting it to his feelings of alienation, he managed to write a song that could reach everyone everywhere. Mm -hmm. He worked with producer Gus Dudgeon, and together they got hella creative, using a Mellotron and Stylophone to create the sci-fi sounds accompanying lyrics about Major Tom, an astronaut who's dealing with the fame of going into space as well as impending doom because the mission is going real wrong. (laughs) It's a really theatrical song. It is. And on just first hearing and not thinking about it, it's very, it can be a very, like, obvious song. Mm Mm-hmm. It's only when you listen to it over and over and you kind of understand where David Bowie is putting in like his feelings of just like this floating in space and no sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. David wrote it to be featured on his promotional film Love You Till Tuesday that was to be shopped around to the labels. Unfortunately, that got shelved because, yeah, of course it did. Because, yeah. Either way, they did manage to get Space Oddity released five days before the Apollo 11 launch. And this definitely helped to launch itself into the charts. Get out. Ah. Get out. Ah. (laughs) Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. That was it. I mean, or so you'd think, right? Okay, Bowie writes this hit song. Now he's famous. Well, unfortunately, many viewed this as a one-hit wonder, a novelty song, Mm. if you will. And while it did help the sales on his sophomore release, which was also self-titled, There was still very little fanfare overall. Hmm. The album itself was met with mixed reviews. Some of it really sticks the landing, while other songs are a bit all over the place. David was still finding his lane, but you could see he was forming the sound that he was going to be known for. Mm -hmm. A few months before the release of this iconic song, David met an American model named Angela Barnett. Confident, bold, and unapologetic, she was unlike anyone he had been with before. And luckily for him, she felt the same way. And so they began a romance. Mm -mm. One of the best aspects of this had to be the fact that they both wanted the relationship to stay non-monogamous, knowing what they were capable of. Mm -hmm. They're like, look, I love you. Let's be together. However, we're going to fuck around. Right. This is an example of non-monogamy, like, where it should work. Right. And hopefully they didn't bring it up in every conversation (laughs) they had with every person they met because... Mm -hmm. You know what's insufferable? When somebody that. has to bring up their non-monogamy in every conversation. Yep. Yeah. I. You're like, we were just talking about what toppings we wanted on yeah, pizza. I was literally just talking about bringing my dog to the vet. I'm. The connections here are just leaps and bounds. Notice me. <laughs> yeah. I'm different. <laughs> Angie had a large influence on David's look going forward. While he was always interested in theatrics and performances that broke out of the social norms, she provided him a safety net in which to experiment. She encouraged his androgyny. And I get a little miffed because, like, some people try to, like, really downplay Angie's role. Why? 
because she's a woman. They're like, Bowie was already dressing in drag before Angie came along. Like, he kind of wasn't. Yeah. He was more like, he was experimenting a little with makeup. Yeah. And a little, but like, with just like growing his hair out. Like, he wanted to go there. Mm -hmm. And nobody's saying like, Angie, like, was the reason he did it. She was the bridge to get him to the other side. Yeah. If you didn't have Angie, Ziggy Stardust ain't never going to exist. Yeah. You kind of need to have that one person who's like, no, fucking go for it. Like, whole hog. Just do it. She was super supportive. Like, to the point where she would help him do his makeup, design his clothes. Like, she was not only encouraging it, but assisting him. Mm -hmm. So maybe stop downplaying her role. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah. He started growing out his beautiful long locks even more and started putting on a little more makeup. Eventually, David started wearing dresses for performances and photo shoots. Their partnership was an essential part of their relationship, and they would end up marrying in March 1970, less than a year after they met. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Kenneth and Angie did not seem to get along very well, though. He felt with her on board that she was limiting his influence, and she felt that he was trying to stray David away from rock and roll and into a cabaret lounge singer career. No. I don't know. weird. Yeah, it was all weird. I think they just hated each other. It's fine. You know what? It's fine. David was currently in the midst of a friendly rivalry with his friend slash musical peer, Mark Boland of T-Rex. Oh, okay. They were buds, but also, like, constantly trying to one-up each other. Yeah. Frenemies. Yeah. At this point, glam rock was beginning to come about, and the music and fashion styles were reflecting that. So David ended up creating another band to perform with him. I think it's different this time because he's creating the band. He's not joining a band. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it ended up being bassist Tony Viscotti, guitarist Mick Ronson, and drummer Mick Woody Woodmansey. Woody Woodmansey. Yep. I had to say that. Five times. (laughs) They called themselves the hype, and it was here that shit got real glam. They all moved into a mansion together called Haddon Hall. Yes, this included wives and girlfriends. Mm -hmm. It turned into an art commune, but it gave them the ability to work together as a cohesive unit. Here they not only worked on music, but personalities as well. The hype dressed as their own kind of superheroes, and with the help of Angie, created costumes for their onstage performances. That's fun. Like, one of them kind of had, like, a hype cape, and, like, Bowie had these, like, real sparkly, like, onesie things Mm -hmm. going on. It was fabulous. Recording was a group effort. With David a little bit preoccupied with managerial issues, it not only helped share the load, but gave the music a more of a direction. Taking a cue from the success of Space Oddity, they definitely had a hard rock sound on this next album. Mm Mm-hmm. In November 1970, David Bowie released his third album, The Man Who Sold the World. Surprisingly, it was received more positively in the U.S. than the U.K. I mean, overall, it was a commercial flop. Mm -hmm. But, like, there was still that silver lining. Yeah. Also, that's a great song. Yeah. Man. Nirvana, right? Yeah. (laughs) Guys. Nirvana, am I right? (laughs) Oh, my God. And fortunately, that was enough to get David to travel across the pond to New York City. New York City. It may have done so well in the U.S. because it was released there with a different cover. Because we all know now the album with Bowie wearing a lovely dress on a chaise lounge. Mm -hmm. And it was initially released in the U.S. as a drawing of a cowboy in front of the Cane Hill Asylum to capture the album's foreboding themes. Okay. Again, he's dealing a lot with like 
captivity, mental illness, uh-huh. deep themes. Bowie is a very deep person, if right. nothing else. So when he came over to the U.S. and arrived in a dress, ha, huh, that rhymes. <laughs> it shouldn't surprise you to hear that customs were quite confused by the whole thing. It took a little extra time to get released, but once he did, he was on his way to break into the U.S. one radio interview and one performance at a time. Mm. At this point, he had a new manager, Tony DeFries, and he really encouraged David to spend money like he had it and something that would become a problem to bite him in the <laughs> ass later. I'll get there next episode. Great. <laughs> a few years prior, David had discovered the Velvet Underground and became a mega fan. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you can hear a lot of that influence, especially on his earlier albums. He also came to learn of Andy Warhol and the factory. And again, he was entranced. Hmm. So entranced that he wrote a song called Andy Warhol. (laughs) He also wrote a a song for Bob Dylan called A Song for Bob Dylan. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush. You know, I appreciate that. He's very, he's straight straight to the point. Yeah. He's bi, but he is straight and to the point. Yes. Story has it that once David got to the States, he got in touch with that whole factory scene thanks to making a connection with actor Tony Zanetta. And eventually he was meeting his idol, Andy Warhol, and he with him, he brought an advanced copy of Hunky Dory, his next album that features the Andy Warhol song. Mm Mm-hmm. I bet you won't guess how Andy Warhol reacted to the whole thing. I'm going to say... Probably mm, nonplussed. Good calendar word. Right? <laughs> Andy Warhol is not really a guy that's easy to connect to. No. No, he's not. No. Appar- you, could, you could almost say unemotional. Yeah. Apparently, he's not much of a talker either. <laughs> Quiet, indeed. <laughs> so it's up for Bowie to make up for that. But, like, Bowie's not, like, a huge talker in those days. Right. So the only thing Andy really seemed to care about was Bowie's yellow Mary Janes. So the two managed to chat about shoes for a bit. And then Andy took some video or pictures or whatnot of him, and they pretty much walked away from the whole thing empty-handed. And everyone thought this would be an amazing connection, a partnership. Oh, no. They never talked again. No. This, this was the only... This was like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you meet your idols and they turn out to be the complete opposite of what you expected. Don't meet your idols. Yeah. Yep. Oh, and BT Dubs. Warhol didn't say much about the song, but apparently hated it. Uh, yeah, I kind of. I look, guys. I don't like Andy Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna be around the bush. Nah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna David Bowie this uh, yeah. shit and say I'm gonna release a song called "I Don't Like Andy Warhol." <laughs> Pretty much. If I ever did release a song, it would be that. I'd like. I'd listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Not all was lost, though. David did manage to have some great encounters at the time. He got to meet Lou Reed, who he understandably looked up to creatively. Mm -hmm. The two got on well and became friends. That's nice. The most important meeting that trip, though, would be when David got to see the Stooges perform and started a friendship with the lead singer, Iggy Pop. These two musicians would serve as David's most important and life-changing muses. He began to form an idea about an out-of-this-world rock star based on them, he just needed to come up with a name, a look, a story, but that is all going to come soon enough. Mm-hmm. And also soon enough, you will hear about why his connection with Iggy Pop is so important. They become buds. <laughs> Another great meeting would happen for David in 1971, but that was back in England. That May, Angie gave birth to their son, Duncan Zoe Haywood Jones, or Zoe for short. 
It was spelled like Bowie with a Z. Like Zowie? Yeah. Because I keep saying Zowie, but it was pronounced Zoe like Bowie. I kind of don't like that, but no. you know what? Fine. Uh, eventually, Zoe prefers to go with just... He, he changed his name to just Duncan Jones. He's like, yeah, can I, I just mean, be Duncan? Because Zoe I don't really, is weird. I don't really want to be Zoe Bowie. Also, I don't want to be Zowie Bowie. <laughs> he was never Bowie. He was always Jones. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, and on the next album, the song Kooks would be dedicated to him. That's nice. Yeah. So it's like a nice, sweet thing for Bowie. I'm like, oh, nice. What year is that? 70, 71. 71. Yep. Hunky Dory was officially released at the end of 71. Mm-hmm. And unlike Andy Warhol, the people loved it. <laughs> Honestly, to... Andy Warhol's opinion doesn't count. Put that I dig. Just, that little yeah. dig in Andy Warhol. David Stabby Stabby. And da- I needed to do a little David Stabby Stabby in Andy Warhol's. <laughs> pride Mm. opening with the now iconic song changes critics found it to be an engaging experience changes face the change changes that's a good one it is a good one finally it seemed david was no longer a step behind the trends and instead setting the standard for others to follow here is where david bowie's success begins to truly take root and grow Mm. The songs took a heavier bend to piano, giving them a bit more warmth. In fact, Rick Wakeman, member of prog rock band Yes, played piano on the album. Oh, well, shit. And toured with them a little bit. Indeed. Bowie was like, hey, you want to join my band? And Rick's like, nah, I'm going to join this other band. They're called Yes. <laughs> and Bowie's probably like, that's not going to go anywhere. You should have just come along with us. And he was like, yeah, no, I'm going to go do this thing and be an inspiration for one of the best prog rock bands in the world. Yeah. They're they're not formed yet, but I think they're going to be called Rush. <laughs> hey, I mean, so maybe thanks to Bowie, we have Rush? Well, maybe. Maybe he play a little hand? A little bit of hand. I like connections. You know what? Yeah. It's more of a six degrees, but I'm still happy yeah, about it. Tiny hand in in all of this. It's a little pinky, but yeah. I like it. I just like knowing that there's like a little... A little red string connection there it's cute and it's cute i like that initially the album didn't do great commercially and that's because of the tried and true lack of promotion from the label of course drink Why would they <laughs> again when you hear shit that we talk about in every episode just drink <sighs> they were unsure if david truly was more than a one-hit wonder and word on the street was that he planned on changing his look for the next album RCA just had no idea what to do with him, so they did nothing. And that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't you want to lose money on an act that you could just be promoting and making money on? Yes. Yes, I do. It wouldn't be until the release of his next album that listeners would go back and give this record the time it deserves on their turntable. Because even though Hunky Dory is David Bowie firmly placing his feet in the ground, the next album was going to be what would make him a goddamn rock star. Mm -hmm. But that's going to have to wait until the next episode. Oh, man. Cliffhanger! (laughs) (laughs) Boo. Yeah. I mean, you know where this is going. I Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. But I want to hear about it now. I know. It's, it's, yeah, this this is a lot. (laughs) This isn't even that much. Like, now that I'm reading, like, rereading through everything, I'm like, did I even do anything this weekend besides all these notes? I yeah. don't know. But um, I mean, if you want more David Bowie stuff, you can always go back and listen to our uh, 
Black, Black Star, Star episode. episode from way back when. Oh my god, that's a, that's an old baby. That's like I think when we started to have somewhat listenable quality episodes. <laughs> you can listen to that one. That's okay. Yeah, that one's fine. Mm-hmm. I just mean like it took us a while for some reason to get the audio right. It's also we were in a really shitty recording location. Yeah. Did not help. Old old wooden houses. <laughs> not the best. Not great for recording, no matter yeah. how much padding you put in. Yeah. yeah. No matter how many blankets you put on garment racks and surround yourself with. It doesn't matter. It doesn't After matter. After a while, <laughs> the room is like, hey, you sweating your balls off? Yeah, I'm still going to make a weird echo. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, carpets. And yeah. So y'all are going to have to come back next week to find out what happens to Bowie. Mm-hmm. And it's... That episode's a journey. Yeah, that's that's a two towers that, episode. Honestly, that's gonna be a two yeah. towers episode for fucking sure. Yeah, we're going Holy through the uh, the marshes in that one. Yeah, there is some Isengard realness up in here. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go all Aragorn and break our toe kicking a helmet. Milk and peppers. Milk and peppers. Milk and peppers. That's that's my teaser for next week. Oh, milk and peppers. Milk now and I peppers. remember. Now mm. I remember. Mm. Yeah, we kind of talked about that in an older episode. Yep. Oh, gross. So yeah, gross. So gross. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. Mm-hmm. I hope I did a decent job so far on David Bowie. It's okay. Yeah. It doesn't keep me up at night. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. It doesn't haunt my dreams or anything. I don't like wake up to the sound, sound of, of a, a laughing, laughing gnome. gnome. <laughs> Get the fuck out of my head. <laughs> You son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, well, if you are digging this and are interested in checking out other episodes, like Ash's epic three-parter on Rush that we just did, which is why we're I'm still, still so nostalgic. I'm still not over it. Yeah, no. I'm still not over it. I, I, it's like when you read a good book or watch a really good movie and you still think about it a couple weeks later, you're like, man. Gives you warm fuzzies. Or, like, about or it. like even just like like stabs in the heart of like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of everything. I um, just ordered two of Neil Peart's books and am going to read them because now I have I time to do recreational reading. That's true. That's not for this podcast. But it is still music but based. But it's still music based. But it's my choice. It is. Your, it's your My brain, eyeballs, your cho- my choice. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> but you can find more episodes at our website. That's rockcandypodcast.com. You can also find links to our social meds. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Twitter, we just post episodes. Like, we'll do the best we can. I'm over Twitter. I know. Aren't we all? And I don't even do the Twitter. I do the other ones. I mean, that's the thing. At least you do something for our other ones. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, uh, come on in next week for more on David Bowie. And until then, party on, Ashley. Yeah. Party on. (laughs) Get rid of that hangover, am I right? And party on, you crazy kids out there. Bye. It's the, uh, it's the gnome service, of course. Ha ha ha,